Who am I? You sure you want to know? The story of my life is not for the faint of heart. If somebody said it was a happy little tale, somebody lied. I will never forget these words. With great power comes great responsibility. Who am I? I'm Spider-Man. Welcome to Now Playing's Amazing Spider-Man Retrospective Series. Can Spider-Man come out to play? Part of the Now Playing Marvel Comic Movie Series. The real crime would be not to finish what we started. Hosted by Jacob. I told you he's not a menace. Stuart. Oh, Rosie, I love this boy. And Arnie. Tells me you're brilliant. He also tells me you're lazy. Come to NowPlayingPodcast.com every Tuesday and Friday for another Spider-Man movie review, ending in a week of release review of this summer's The Amazing Spider-Man. We're gonna have a hell of a time. Ooh, my spider sense is tingling. If you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) But if your spider sense is tingling, it's because this podcast will have detailed plot spoilers and mild language. So listener discretion is advised. Go get him, Tiger. Today we're discussing Spider-Man 2, starring Tobey Maguire, Kirsten Dunst, James Franco, Alfred Molina, Rosemary Harris, and J.K. Simmons. Directed by Sam Raimi. I'm Arnie, and I'm back! I'm back! My back! My back! (laughs) Stuart in L.A. I will not die a podcaster! Though, if they keep putting out these superhero movies, I might. This is Jacob. (laughs) I worry about that every day. One more week, guys. One more week. I had nightmares before we did the Avengers that I would die right before we got to do that one after a year plus, you know. Marvel behind us, DC looming in the future. (laughs) But we are here discussing Spider-Man 2, 2004's follow-up to the unbelievable success. Now, there are two cuts of this movie, so which one did you guys watch? There's two, and then right before three came out, they did 2.1, which is eight minutes longer. Is there something in the cut that will let me know which is which? Is Spider-Man's suit riding up in his crotch? Yes. I didn't watch that carefully. (laughs) I had to think about it. On the elevator, right? Yes, on the elevator. Yes. If it's riding up in his crotch, that is the theatrical cut. Okay, I saw the theatrical. As did I. I saw both multiple times for this review, so I am prepared to discuss the differences as we go. They are very minor, but there is eight minutes of difference. And Spider-Man 2, I said starring Tobey Maguire, but that was a little bit in doubt back when Spider-Man was reigning supreme at the box office. I remember all the drama, will he return? What is it with these stars? They get one hit and then it's like, oh, I'm too good for this. Tobey Maguire, you know, he worked out so much and campaigned to get the role. And the sequel, he's like, I want money. If you don't give me money, I'm going to eat more Twinkies. I mean, really, (laughs) he just didn't want it anymore. And Dunst was dating Jake Gyllenhaal at the time, so he was approached. I do remember there was some talk, you know, it was a power play. I don't think they'd actually have done it, but I think they were like, oh, yeah, Toby. Well, we got Jake on the line, and he's going to do it for the price we want. You know, Terrence Howard and Edward Norton didn't think they'd do it either. 
I think Marvel has proven at this point, aspiring actors know that they will replace you if you get into a Marvel property. But as for Toby, I have to say, all the bonus features I've gone through and everything, I'm really wondering what is true and what isn't. Of course, the story at the time was he hurt his back on Seabiscuit and the whole my back, my back was kind of a clever joke because he was saying that he couldn't come back and do those stunts because he had sustained a bad injury riding that horse. There's no way I can do it. I've hurt myself. Except if you pay me $10 million. Come on. I mean, you lose credibility if you're saying I can't physically do it, except if you pay more. Again, we got two different things here. Toby said, I can't do it. Toby's agent said $25 million or 10% of the gross, whichever's higher. $25 million? $25 million. He ended up doing it for seventeen. <laughs> Such a compromise. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, was it a bad back? Was it money? Maybe both. But Donnie Darko almost donned the spider duds, and that really would have been meta as he was dating Dunst, which I gotta think that's gotta be an awkward time on set. I have to kiss you now, even though I tried to get you replaced with my boyfriend. (laughs) (laughs) I would have accepted Jake. I think he has a similar kind of boy-next-door quality. I think he would have worked, but I do think it would have hurt the series. Having never seen Spider-Man 2 before, but seeing it now, it is really tightly interwoven with what was done in the original. It is not a standalone movie, so to switch gears like that... It's not like they're telling a new chapter. It would feel awkward not to have the original stars back. Jake Gyllenhaal would work. I've liked him in most of the things I've seen him in. But yeah, this film and coming off the success of that first Spider-Man one, it would be a bit jarring. Well, as a person who walked away from Spider-Man, a pretty avid fan, I watched the production of Spider-Man 2 very closely. I tried not to get too invested in Toby. As I said last time, I thought he was a great Peter Parker. Didn't think he was the best Spider-Man. So I tried not to get too into it, but I was glad to see the continuity between the two when I was there opening night. Yes, I went from refusing to see the first one to seeing this opening night. The difference? I could champion this one. Revenge of the Sith was a year away. (laughs) There was no competing loves in 2004. I missed this entirely. You know, this was the year before I became steward in L.A. I was working and saving money to make a move, and I don't think I saw many movies in 2004 at all. So I can't even tell you when this came out. Obviously, I knew it came out in summer, but I don't recall it at all, except reading on Best of 2004 list how this was great, and some even said the greatest superhero movie of all time. But I missed it until this week. I heard those same claims. Best superhero movie ever. I didn't see it when it originally came out. I got married late 2003, 2004. Still, you know, the starving newlyweds. Didn't have a lot of extra income to go see movies. Working a whole lot. So there's a good year or two of films that I'm behind on. But I did eventually see this when I got it on Netflix and watched it. But a few years after it originally came out. See, and I'm... Really, other than Star Wars films, not the type to see films multiple times in theaters, unless I'm reviewing them for now playing, but I saw Spider-Man 2 three times that summer, twice locally, once opening night to see it, once with a friend who'd come to town visiting, and then I actually made the trek to an IMAX up in Chicago and saw it in IMAX as well. 
That's why you're the fan. Gotta ask, because you are so keen on Spider-Man, did it help that it had a more recognizable villain? You were kind of, come see, come saw on Green Goblin, but everybody knows Doc Ock. I mean, he is arguably the most famous Spider-Man villain. And I found out in my research for this podcast, he was considered for the first one. It was Raimi who came in and said, no, we aren't doing Dr. Octopus. We're doing Green Goblin. They had several scripts with Doc Ock. So he was a foregone conclusion for the second one. Not to say people don't know Green Goblin. I know Green Goblin. He just didn't seem the de facto answer. But yeah, I was excited to see Dr. Octopus. All the trailers had me very excited for the design they used on the arms. And Alfred Molina... Loved him in Boogie Nights and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Thought he looked right for the role. That's where I've seen this guy before. You throw me the idol, I throw you the trillium. (laughs) I wasn't surprised that they went with Green Goblin in the first one, but you gotta get to Doc Ock. Everyone knows who he is. Such a strange villain, kind of pudgy, wears glasses, but he's got these cool robot arms. He was always the one that actually scared me watching that 60s cartoon. There is something about the voice actor, and yeah, it's the Elton John glasses, I think, that really, (laughs) really did it for me. Now, he is the only villain in this movie. They actually went through many drafts and treatments where Doc Ock was going to team up with Sandman. Ah, I figured there had to be thoughts of a team-up. It was surprising that they only came up with one villain this time. And... Much like Batman Returns, they were also going to introduce the character of Black Cat, who is perhaps a Catwoman ripoff in every way. (laughs) Perhaps. In what way wouldn't she be? Let's see. She's a thief who dresses like a cat in a dominatrix leather outfit and then proceeds to have a romance with our hero. Yeah, that's Catwoman. (laughs) But they ended up paring down the script and... Just having Doc Ock and saving the rest for possible future sequels. All right, then. Why don't you tell them what we do see here? Give us the plot of Spider-Man 2. When Spider-Man 1 ended, Peter Parker said, I'm Spider-Man. But in the two years in between, Peter has found being Spider-Man isn't as easy as he thought. He's continued to keep true love Mary Jane at arm's length, pushing her into the arms of astronaut John Jameson, the son of Peter's boss, J. Jonah Jameson, and Peter's only friend, Harry Osborn, is upset with Peter for not helping with his hunt of Spider-Man, who Harry blames for the murder of his father, Norman Osborn. Plus, his spider duties take up so much of his time, Peter can't keep a good job, and he's flunking out of all his classes. His hope for a passing grade is his paper on Otto Octavius, who's performing a nuclear fusion experiment. Oscorp is funding the experiment, and as Harry inherited control of Oscorp when his father died, Harry sets up a meeting between Peter and the physicist. The two become fast friends, and Otto invites Peter to be present during the experiment, but the experiment goes wrong, Otto's wife is killed, and his four robotic, artificially intelligent arms that Otto used to maintain a safe distance from the experiment are damaged, and become attached to the scientist and slowly drive him a bit crazy. Otto runs into hiding, but his arms convince him that Peter was the cause of the experiment's failure and that he should redo the experiment to restore his reputation. To fund the experiment, Otto starts to use his robotic arms to rob banks. Spider-Man battles Dr. Octopus, but Peter's personal problems are compounded when his powers start to fail him in combat. His self-doubt soon leaves him powerless and able to live a normal life. He starts doing well in class and attempts to rekindle a romance with now-engaged Mary Jane. But when Doc Ock needs the rare element tritium to do the experiment, he goes to Harry Osborn, who makes a deal. If Doc Ock delivers Spider-Man to Harry, Harry will give Otto the tritium. 
to get to Spider-Man, Otto attacks Peter and kidnaps Mary Jane. This clarifying moment brings Peter's powers back in full, and Spider-Man and Ock fight, but Spider-Man is defeated. Ock gives Spider-Man to Harry, gets the tritium, and Harry tries to kill Spider-Man. But first he unmasks him and is shocked to see it's his best friend Peter under the mask. Peter awakens and escapes Harry's confinement to go rescue Mary Jane and stop Otto from performing his experiment, which will likely destroy the city. Unmasking, Peter is able to reason with Otto, bringing him back to sanity, and Otto sinks his science project in the harbor, drowning in the process. Meanwhile, the unmasked Spider-Man saves Mary Jane, whose suspicions of Peter's identity is now confirmed. And as the movie ends, Mary Jane abandons her fiancé at the altar to live a swinging life with New York savior Spider-Man. But across town... Harry has a vision of his dead father in a mirror, and smashing the mirror, Harry finds Norman's stash of Green Goblin gear, leaving us on the edge of our seats for three years until the next sequel. I have to say, I was immediately happy when the movie started, when we got the opening credits that did not have Lawnmower Man Spider-Man. We had strands of a web, comic panels retelling the first movie, the Danny Elfman score. I was... Really happy to be back in this world. Yeah, I did notice we, we didn't get that awful CGI Spider-Man that, you know, they pulled a Rocky here. They're going to recap the last film for you. I don't know why VCRs existed. VCRs were gone by this time. It's all DVDs, right? You could go rent that for a buck. I think Netflix was even around. But then we get through the credits and Spider-Man is working as a pizza delivery boy. Yeah, we're going to get in some slapstick comedy. I don't know what's going on here. This is one of the first of many cameos I feel that are populated. The last movie I don't feel had such emphasis on people of note in the pop culture turning up for bit parts. But here's Asif Manvi from The Daily Show doing some little bit about a disgruntled pizza guy. (laughs) I want to know two things. Stuart, you've been to New York quite a bit. Jacob, I don't know if you've been... But first of all, are there any pizza places in New York that deliver 42 blocks away? And second, how can you get halfway across Manhattan, which is what 42 blocks is, in eight minutes? By this time, were there even the 30-minute guarantees on pizza plate? Like, that was a thing in the 80s, I remember. That's, like, gone away, the whole 30 minutes or less. Way too many hit-and-run incidents for Domino's to perpetuate the 30 minutes or less rule. I was acquitted. But I guess they want to set the tone right away that things haven't gone so well for Peter. It seemed like he had his identity together. He didn't have his girl, but it seemed like everything else about him was in order. Two years later, and it's kind of pathetic. This first half hour, I want to call it the passion of the Parker. Because (laughs) it's just like, your life sucks, dude. And the thing with Spider-Man is that Yeah, his life does suck. He's struggling to help his aunt out. He kind of caused his uncle's death. He's struggling to be in school and have a girlfriend and be a hero at the same time. I don't think we need to keep heaping all the bad fortune upon him. Like, that's already his deal, is that he's a hero despite the bad fortune. We don't need to make it worse. But that's what the comics are. The comics, this guy is such... A born loser. They have this thing called the Parker Law. It never rains. It always pours on Peter Parker. <laughs> I mean, he's always late on his rent, out of a job, can't afford Aunt May's medicine. It's how the comics go. And it's rare the moment when he actually is on top of the world. So I think this is really true to the spirit of the comic book. And 
I also think it's a good way to let us know our superhero isn't super in every way. Again, we always, or Jacob, you and I have said that Superman's kind of dull because he has everything so perfect. Here it's nice to know the character does struggle a bit in other areas of life. It's funny to me. This opening sequence, I love it. First of all, the Spider-Man stole that dude's pizza, but then he can't even keep the brooms up in the closet. He can't deliver the pizzas without them looking just totally crap. I really like this introduction. I'm laughing. I guess I could have gone with this introduction if it just didn't keep going throughout this first act, getting worse and worse. Like, okay, fine. Yeah, he's struggling. He can't get a pizza on time because he's got to go save the kids from getting hit by a car. The slapstick, two minutes of him trying to put the brooms in the broom closet. It's longer in the extended cut. Oh, jeez. Get your priorities straight, Parker. You had 29 minutes. You don't spend five minutes straightening out the broom closet. Do that after you deliver the pizza. (laughs) He was like, what, 10 feet away? What's great about that is it was funny, and then it wasn't, and then it just kept going on and became funny again. I realized very quickly into this how radically different this movie was going to feel from the last one. It had a different writer. I looked it up, and just right away, I sensed the urgency to establish a problem for Spider-Man to fight is not here in this story. It almost feels like they got Woody Allen to direct a superhero movie here because (laughs) it really is so neurotic and it's all about the yucks and the put-upon New Yorker bit here that you almost forget that there's going to be a supervillain to fight. It's 20 minutes before he even meets Dr. Octavius and another 10 minutes before he becomes a threatening figure. It's 30 minutes of bits and cameos and jokes And we talked about in the last Spider-Man film how efficient it was. You had his entire origin story. You had the Green Goblin's origin story in the first half hour. You'd established all these characters. We only have one new character to establish here, Octavius. And we get this poetry monologue. It's a half hour, and the whole thesis of this first half hour is Peter Parker's life sucks. I'm liking this first half hour. Now, maybe it's because, Stuart, you mentioned the star cameos. I'm loving the character cameos in here. I mean, we got J.J. back. We've got Elizabeth Banks back in her thankless role as Betty Brant, the secretary. We now have Dr. Connors, who we will be talking a lot about in a week. But he was name-dropped last time. Here he is, played by Dylan Baker from Happiness and the Stupids TV show and some other stuff. <laughs> they did a Stupids TV show, not just a bad movie. <laughs> there was a TV show called The Stupids. He was the star. Wow. I just like how you like underhanded him too. I'm like he was in happiness and this other piece of garbage <laughs> that no one knows about but me. Well, he was also in planes, trains, and automobiles, which I didn't realize until I saw that again recently and went, Oh my god, it's him. But he was cast, set up to be intended to be the lizard, much like Billy D was going to someday be Two-Face. I had a feeling. There just seemed to be too much of this teacher here for it to not have some payoff further down the line. I'm learning that about Marvel and that they're just keeping people in reserve so that they can pull them out whenever they decide the time is right. And I think this is a good way. I know there's DVDs out there. But that said, you don't want to count that everybody just popped in their Spider-Man 1 DVD before they went to see Spider-Man 2 in theaters. I like how we're reintroduced to the universe, we're reintroduced to Peter Parker's life, his struggles, MJ, Harry. It's all done in a very natural way at Peter's birthday party, and then we get a callback 
to the garbage can scene from the last movie. I thought these scenes were great because I'm liking the characters. I'm liking what happens. I'm at no point wishing that there was a baddie distracting me for this first half hour. It's radical to someone that doesn't know the character or read the comics. This feels uncommercial to me. I would think that audiences would revolt against a movie with so little, I can't say it doesn't have conflict, but so little super conflict. There's no threat that's hovering over the situations. It's literally starting to feel like a teen story. It's much more about problems anybody would be having as a 20-something in New York. The fact that he is a superhero is almost incidental. It's used to underline the comedy. But really, I would say that the Dr. Octopus story in this movie is a B storyline. The A storyline is Peter and his struggling to come to terms with being Spider-Man and, in fact, losing his powers, as I mentioned in the plot summary. If you're going to sell that his neuroses cause him to psychosomatically lose his powers... You need to set that up. So the biggest villain in this movie is Peter himself and his own self-doubt. And this first half an hour really sets that up. That's why this feels radical, because I felt like, oh, we had the origin story. I wasn't left questioning who this guy was. I didn't realize that the origin story would bleed over into this. I mean, I didn't realize how closely connected the two movies would be, and that even though it's been two years, very little has changed from his uncertainty. I mean, he's still the loser he was in high school. I dare say life is worse for him now that he's out on his own than when he was being bullied at school. Yeah, if the last film was all about becoming a man and going through this metaphoric puberty and learning how to take responsibility, this is a film about a midlife crisis. And I guess you could pull off an impotent superhero. They try to do that in The Watchmen, literally. But I see what you're saying, Stuart. It is radically different. It's not radical. It's just radically different. And it's taken me in a direction I wasn't expecting to go. And so maybe that's what's happening. It's these expectations clashing with the reality of this movie. And they're just not meshing. After how big Spider-Man was, this is not what I'm expecting for the sequel. Yeah, by the time we get to the laundromat and he's reading poetry, I realize how little concern there is for keeping pace with a superhero movie. And I know these by now. I didn't know at the time when I watched the original Spider-Man, but having gone through my trial by Marvel, I know how this should work. And this, it's just different. And it is throwing me for a loop. And I'm not saying I don't like it. I'm saying that I am stunned. I can't believe that scenes aren't being driven by narrative demands, but by what will be funny. By the same token, there are a couple minor action scenes here. There is Peter saving those kids. There's Peter trying to help with a police chase. And I have to ask, am I the only one who thinks that the CGI might have gotten a little worse since the last movie. A little? It looks bad. You know, if the other one, it looked like it was this computer-generated image, you know, in front of real-life shots, and there wasn't really the weight and physicality that you'd expect for a, a real-life being, this one was even more fluffier and lighter and popped out from these real backgrounds to me. It almost felt to me like a 3D movie where Spider-Man was on a totally different plane than the rest of his background. 
I don't feel like they were worse. I don't think that they were an improvement. Usually there's enough time between sequels that when we get to see things that we've seen before, they're able to put a spin on them that makes them feel like, wow, they pulled something off here. It really has only been two years since they released Spider-Man in theaters and this one. Not only is that the time frame for the characters, it's the time that they had in production. And I just don't see that they've made a quantum jump in what they've been doing. It's exactly the same look. And I guess that's good. It keeps with the connections, but it didn't feel revolutionary in any way. And they won an Oscar, it should be mentioned. For this one? Yes. Did they win for the original? No, they didn't for the first one. They got it for this one. Hmm. I guess it's a makeup, then. It really doesn't feel any better or worse to me. But what does feel worse? Welcome back, MJ! Her wig is worse. (laughs) She constantly looks like my dog when he just comes in out of the rain with that hair. That hair is just matted and stringy. There's so much here that feels nothing to do with Spider-Man I want to explore. (laughs) Is this where you want to start with your hair care? MJ is a major bitch in this movie, and it was a stunner. I remember really liking these two in the last movie. Now we have a half hour of her being self-possessed about her career and literally calling poor oppressed Peter an empty seat. It's hard to like Kirsten Dunst in this movie anymore, and I'm kind of surprised at the whiplash I got at going from, wow, I really want them to be together, to, you know, Peter really needs to see other people. I am so glad to hear you say that. I thought it was just me. I thought maybe I was projecting because you talked about Toby and his salary demands. But I want to say that in everything I've read in the many, many years since this, Toby and Sam Raimi are very good friends who stand by each other, support each other. The person who is the odd man out in that trio is Kirsten Dunst, who, oh, hire my boyfriend and stopped doing any of the publicity for this movie. She immediately felt trapped by her three-film contract. She was too good for these silly superhero movies. She found it a burden to have fans want to take her picture. And so I thought I might have been projecting a little bit. But yeah, I do not like her in this movie at all. I think she is a bit of a shrew, and it just doesn't quite work for me as much as it should. That said, she's been trying to get this nerd for two years. I could understand a little frustration. So you don't like her because she pulled a Portman. She did exactly what Natalie did with Star Wars. Gets the big picture and then craps all over it. I don't know if this was Dunst insisted upon. Maybe she did want to create an unlikable on-screen persona so that it would put up a bitch guard and people wouldn't approach her on the street. I don't know what was going on in her personal life. I can tell you that at this point, she just seems like another dark cloud on Peter. Poor Peter. You know, he keeps getting fired by JJ. He's flunking out of school. And the girl that he's obsessed with is someone that will never treat him right. I mean, it just seems part of the oppression Maybe the worst part of it is that he is so hung up on someone who really is unsympathetic to his needs, who only can think about how important it is that he get to her play. I do want to say my dislike of her goes away. It is strongest in this first portion, though, at the birthday party and everything. I come around to her again. But yeah, early on in this film, I'm feeling the same way. You know, I didn't like her much in the first film, and so those feelings are just carrying over here. She didn't hit me as a major bitch, as you put it, Stuart, but I never really liked her in this role as Mary Jane so far. I was surprised at how minimal her role was. She is a plot point in this movie, but she's hardly a character. She is an object for Peter 
to want. But I felt in the last movie that she had her own arc going on. She had her own story. She had her abusive father and everything. Here, she's got things going on, but we don't care about how they impact her. We only care about how they reflect on Peter. Yeah, she's an object of desire, but a fickle one. And we learn eventually through the course of the movie, she's engaged to a guy. I don't know what he sees in her either. We spend even less time on him. That should be her storyline here. But she's defined by the fact that she's going to treat him as badly at the end of the movie as she's been treating Peter. I see her as standing people up and not making up her mind. In fact, Peter couldn't put it better in the middle of the movie. He says that I always imagined you being married outdoors, but not having decided what the groom was going to be. I'm like, ha, he's got your number. I just don't know why he loves you. Her fiancé, John Jameson, a pretty big character from the comics, J. Jonah Jameson's son, the astronaut, who goes to the moon, finds a special jewel, and becomes the man-wolf. I had a feeling he was going to get toxic waste or something spilled on him at some point. (laughs) He was the first astronaut to play football on the moon. I want to see that movie. (laughs) Forget this melodrama with Spider-Man. Show me that. But he's an upstanding guy. I mean, they don't sell him as a lunkhead. He doesn't even seem unintelligent. He seems, at worst, boring. But then again, she's no night out either. He is being a rather safe, predictable choice that allows her to move up a social status. But yeah, I'd love for him to turn into a man bat or whatever the hell you're telling he's going (laughs) to turn into. I'd love for him to do something in this movie because he really isn't even an obstacle for Peter. He doesn't dislike Peter. He doesn't want Peter not to hang around. She's the one that doesn't want to invite Peter to their wedding. I really feel like it's all about MJ and Peter, and this guy is just kind of watching from the sidelines. Well, Peter's other woman in his life, Aunt May, is having problems of her own. She's still grieving over her husband two years later and losing their house. Yeah, she's at the forefront of that. It would be a couple more years before the rest of America did. (laughs) (laughs) And this plots I liked in this movie, again, Rosemary Harris also really downplayed in this movie, practically a cameo. And like you said, there's so many. The banker she goes to, Joel McHale, the soup host. Again, cameos galore. You know what they do? They tell me that when I enter a scene like this, that I'm to pay attention to the jokes, that it becomes a scene about her not getting a toaster because she's not making a $300 deposit. I don't expect anything to transpire in moments where these bit players come in. They're here to underline punchlines. I don't know. I'm enjoying the moments. I don't know that I consider them cameos. I had known some of these people from various things, but mostly they're lower rung. I mean, you mentioned The Daily Show. I'm mentioning The Soup. They all work on basic cable in a very supporting role. Was this one like Best Week Ever and I Love the 80s was going on when we got all these like lower rung comedians that would come into the studio, have a green screen behind them and comment on pop culture for a couple of hours? Yep, you may have nailed it with that, Jacob. I didn't even put that together, but yes. Well, then it sounds like the two of you would be pretty happy when we finally get to our ape storyline with Otto Octavius and his fusion experiment. Yeah, I'm waiting for the villain. I mean, I I hate to say it, but years of Batman and Marvel movies have taught me that the villains become the focal point for any superhero project. So I'm waiting for the project to be kicked off by a character I know that's going to stay in it, not a talk show host that wants to do a bit. 
Alfred Molina. I've always found him to be a vaguely unlikable presence on screen, almost by design. I think he plays <laughs> kind of creeps and toads. He's kind of like the new version of Oliver Platt, maybe? <laughs> I mentioned the movies that I go to for him. I've seen him in other stuff, but he kind of fades into the background a lot. But I like him in this role. I like that they didn't go with some of their original choices. At one point, it was going to be Arnold. Oh. Arnold? Are you kidding me? After <laughs> Batman and Robin? You're pulling my leg. All eight of them. <laughs> uh, he was in office by this point. It, well, it, remember, Doc Ock was going to be in the first movie, too. Ah, wow. No, and I'm starting to get Raimi's formula here. But it really seems to me that when he's thinking about villains, he's thinking about casting people that are going to fit into a paternal role. That the battle always seems to be about father figures and their influence on Spider-Man as he develops and matures. And here's another father figure. It's someone that he idolizes in the scientific community who takes a shine to him and even gives him love advice. He is in many ways a new Ben for him to appreciate. So I'm compelled by the idea that they're going with a dramatic actor and that the battle will be presumably a battle about ideas. You get Arnold and it's just a battle about throwing crap around. But this seems to be the formula here. He makes sense if you're going to go with Willem Dafoe. He's of that caliber. He's a character actor who can sell the drama. Forget the fact that he looks like he's had too many donuts. I mean, that's... Well, Doc Ock's always been pudgy. Seriously, he was never muscular or even thin. He's always been a fat guy. I've seen times when it's like his octopus arm belt is notched a couple things too tight and he's got like muffin tops going on. It, <laughs> it, it's... To the character that Alfred Molina has moves. <laughs> you know, Stuart, you say that you like that there's these themes of fatherhood carrying over. I don't like that. I mean, that's great. Character-driven villain. I'm all for that. I don't need Arnold with his puns. But I just watched a movie about Peter and the surrogate father figure and coming to terms with that. And that father ends up being evil. And do I need that again in another film? The next one, you said earlier, you feel like this is a continuation of the origin story. And yeah, maybe you're right because they're still retreading that same old material. I'm right there with you, Jacob. It does feel like we never left Spider-Man. The origin story is still being told. I agree completely. And I walked out of this movie the first time saying, you know, it feels to me like they did the same thing that they did the first time, only better. Because here with Octavius, I feel we have a much more well-defined villain. We all carped on the Green Goblin's outfit last time. I personally felt that Green Goblin was underdeveloped because he was trying to have his origin story, while Peter's origin story was far more the focus. Goblin kind of showed up at the very end and is like, now you have to join me. It really splits the movie down the middle. Here... Peter has his origin story, and while he's still coming to terms with his powers, and it still feels like an origin story, we get to see Doc Ock having dinner, we get to see him with his wife, we get introduced to his experiments. His theories on poetry. Yes, I like all this. I'm uh -oh. becoming invested in him as a character, and then at about the 45-minute mark, when he finally turns evil... I'm really feeling like he got his due in an origin and that he is a badass villain because those arms really rock. I love those arms. I mean, they are just so well designed, so well created. I think the arms could be why they won their Oscar because from CGI to puppetry, that 
is just a masterful vision of how they work with him. I just am in awe of the fact that they could make Dr. Octopus, who I always thought was a little bit silly, and make him menacing and cool. Arnie, I uh, agree. This is a better villain than Green Goblin. I love how they play up this horror aspect. There's a great scene later on in a hospital where it's straight out of a horror movie. Like, that's what I expect Raimi to do, knowing he comes from the Evil Dead, even those are a little bit campy, but it's still a great horror scene. What holds me back from really loving Doc Ock, wanting to get my arms all around eight of his, is that it's a better version of Green Goblin. Yes, it's better, but it's a copy. Again, here's a character who becomes a villain because the technology drives him crazy, like the arms are talking to him and convince yeah. him to be bad. Let's get into this. I unfortunately feel like I'm going to be giving you a little bit of pushback here, Arnie, because Doc Ock is a problem for me in this movie. I went into this hoping that he would, in fact, be a better, more badass, as you put it, villain. I don't even know that he's evil. I think that he's blinded by his hubris. They continue the themes about great power. He gets a taste of what it is to hold the sun, literally, and doesn't want to let that go. But I don't really know that he's a threat to the whole world. I don't feel like he's evil. I'm not even sure why he ultimately needs to fight Spider-Man other than some contrived reason Harry provides. So let's get into it. We'll start with the arms. You say you love the arms. I thought the arms were almost as weird as the Green Goblin. Goblin mask. Why would you take four mechanical applications and stick them in your spine to do an experiment? That seems weird to me. It felt like an odd moment that that's how he was going to create a renewable energy source. Stuart, this is you not being a comic book superhero person because I understand it's ridiculous and absurd, but it's Spider-Man. I'm just going to go with it. Yeah, I'm the same way. He needs arms that react to his thought. I'm down with it. I'm fine with it. In fact, the fact that he controls them by thought and yet they're artificially intelligent on their own is the reason he becomes a criminal or at least criminally insane. I think that at the time of his accident, he loses his mind because he's got five different minds vying for control in there. He's kind of schizophrenic, much like the goblin gas made Norman mentally unstable. Here, these arms make him mentally unstable. And yeah, if you're going to start questioning the basis of some of this, you got to give it that gimme at the beginning. You just have to. Okay. I just needed you to tell me that there's no reason to like it beyond the fact that it looks cool. It kind of looks cool, but it was weird. You know, they have this demonstration. He's going to talk about how he creates a renewable energy source. I don't know what the octopus arms have to do with what he's doing. What is he doing there? How is he manipulating? It doesn't matter is your answer. They don't really flesh that out. Oh, I need these arms to do this experiment, but the experiment, we're going to shoot some lasers into a rock and it's going to turn into a sun. Why did you yeah. need the arms for that? To hold the sun? I don't know. I think it's all metaphor. It's the idea that he has the power of the sun in his hand. He doesn't want to give up power. His desire for that power turns him into a monster. But he himself is not a bad guy. Well, keep in mind, they're not controlling the sun themselves. What they're doing is controlling the device, the big thing that creates the suns. They're Otto's way of interacting with all he needs to at the speed of thought to control the experiment. They're not creating the renewable power source. Okay. Any more than a hammer creates a wall. It's a tool to get a wall built. Okay, so I thought it was initially interesting that the arms had a mind of their own. 
and he has his own mind, do they actually manipulate his thoughts like they would the sun? Are they like scrambling his brain? That's kind of how it plays to me later when he busts out of the hospital. Yes, they're scrambling his brain. The arms are telling him to do things. The arms are in his head. He's hearing voices and he's mentally insane after the inhibitor chip is fried and the arms fuse to him. I really like the idea of thinking about someone attached to a mechanical device that's beyond their control. To have a symbiotic relationship with a monster is always kind of a Jekyll and Hyde fascinating concept. I found the way that this played out here was really weird. Also, I mentioned during the opening credits I was happy to hear Elfman's score back. But as a big Hellraiser fan... I was in theaters the very first time scratching my head like, am I hearing what I think I'm hearing? It's the Hellraiser score, Hellraiser 2, in fact, in this scene and many others. Really? Da na 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 That thing? Not that one. The, we're in the labyrinth of Leviathan and Dr. Channing's becoming a Cenobite. Hellraiser 2 Hellbound. Not just the music that you think of with the box, but the score there. This is really interesting. Raimi and Elfman had worked together for so many years and been really good friends. But... Someone temp-tracked this scene to Hellraiser 2. I'm surprised they have it at their fingertips, but they do. And Raimi fell so in love with it, he's like, Elfman, make it sound just like this. And Elfman's like, all right, I'm going to write my own thing. And gave it, and Raimi's like, no, make it sound just like this. And this went back and forth. Finally, Elfman's like, if you want Christopher Young, go hire Christopher Young. So Raimi did. Oh! <laughs> called his bluff. <laughs> Never do that unless you're sure. I guess he felt like he was in. I would have felt like he was in. I did the last one. What, are you going to change ships now? You kept Tobey Maguire. It's not Jake Gyllenhaal. Well, oops. Elfman has his name on the CD score, of which a lot of that music isn't in this movie. Half this music is Elfman. Half this music is Christopher Young. And then there's like a little percentage that's a third guy. And Elfman went to the press and was like, I will never work with Sam Raimi again. A direct quote is, to see such a profound negative change in a human being was almost enough to make me feel like I didn't want to work in film anymore. Jeez. Oh my God, this is like a major throwdown. This is a better fight than we get in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and next movie will be scored by Christopher Young. Freddy's Revenge, Christopher Young. Huh. Hellraiser, Christopher Young. It worked for me with the first Ghost Rider. I'm not really loving the Doc Ock theme here. Honestly, I didn't notice any variance in quality. It's a testament, I guess, to the final thing that it all feels of one piece. I don't feel like it feels patchy or that two different people have different ideas about where to take it. I didn't notice the score. It felt like more of the same. I think part of the reason I'm so taken with this is, Jacob, you mentioned how it's like a horror film. This is the first time in two Spider-Man films, not even counting for the love of the game, that I feel Raimi is back being the Raimi that I grew up with and loved in Army of Darkness, Evil Dead 2, and Darkman. Raimi's just going crazy with the cameras and the arms. It is like a horror film, and not like any horror film. It is like Evil Dead 1 and 2, and making me very happy for that. It's doing something I never thought could be done, 
it makes Doc Ock scary. Yeah, that's what I like is that he is scary. But here's another problem for me. You know, we talk about symmetry and fathers and sons and great power and great responsibility. We now have our second film where the villain is bad because they're crazy. Like, they have great power, but we can't expect them to be fulfilling great responsibility because they're insane. Like, I would like to see a villain that matches Peter Parker, that they got this great power, and then they choose to be evil. They choose to shirk that responsibility. And we've just gone back to the Green Goblin here by making a crazy guy. I love the horror aspect of it. I wish this was the first film, so it would seem fresher to me. But now it's just, oh, here's another crazy guy. He's going to go rob some banks or do something bad. That's my problem too, Jacob. You're really nailing it for me. It'd be one thing if they're given great power and it corrupts them, but just by going crazy, that's like almost a hall pass to just go be evil. I don't feel like that's development of character at all. I feel like, oh, he was a good guy until he breathed some gas and now he's the Green Goblin, or he was a good guy until the arms fried his spine and now they make him an evil guy. I feel like that's the wrong way to think about it. The technology should not be turning them evil it should be them corrupted by power going to the dark side it's a subtle difference but one that would help me go along with it because as it plays now it's random and i don't think he's scary at all not even a little Come on, the hospital scene, tell me that doesn't have an eerie vibe when Octavius is unconscious on the table and his arms are killing the doctors and nurses. Yeah, there's the nurse who's getting dragged away with her nails digging into the floor. Ugh. That is a scary moment. I love that moment. I couldn't believe I was seeing that moment in a Spider-Man film, but I was so happy I was. I thought it was really cartoony. It was almost Schumacher cartoony to me, but to each their own. I think the moment was ruined for me when he has to do one of those, no, and stare up at the heavens. You know that I hate that stuff. They do it in Wolverine. I just... Yeah, you lose me every time. Poor guy, he had to do it. It makes me mad. But I do like how he steps out of the hospital and the arms kind of protect him, you know, like he was about to be hit by a cab. It's the first moment he realizes maybe I'm in a good position. Maybe this is cool that I have these extra arms because they protect me from things that I am not aware of. I like that relationship more. And when we get to the first big battle, the bank robbing scene, I thought I saw something that made me excited. And then I was disappointed when... It didn't end up coming to be. You know, he goes to the bank because he's decided he's got to rebuild the lab that's destroyed. And he's lost his wife, so that makes him, what, further determined? Uh, Is he doing it for her? How is that playing into it? Well, I think the whole point of the wife is it cuts his ties to humanity and normalcy. What we see here is Octavius is losing normality. He's kind of doing what Peter has. He's losing the girl. He's losing his job. He's losing his workplace. And he's gaining these powers and these arms. Whereas Peter, he, throughout this movie, he's losing the powers, gaining the girl, gaining the respect of his teachers. So it's almost an inverse path. It's the Superman 2 effect, where I want to get a normal chick, so I'm going to lose my powers. How many times have we brought up that movie? Someday we'll have to bring it up once and for all. (laughs) Maybe twice. Yeah, I felt like all of that was weird motivation. I was waiting for the wife's death to play in in some way that would seem meaningful and apply to the MJ Parker scenario. Maybe what you said will sink in here if I chew on that a little bit. But regardless, he's decided he's going to rebuild the lab and... Presumably, rather than go steal the equipment he needs, he's going to steal the money so that he can then go to Radio Shack. I feel like, <laughs> yeah. I feel like the bank robbing is 
is very convenient because Peter and Aunt May are there and it just allows our characters to finally have a battle way late into this movie. You see, to me, I loved this because what does Dr. Octopus do in the comics? He's constantly robbing banks and jewelry stores. Now, if you had these super arms, why would you do that? It's never really clear. You know, it's the 60s, the 70s, even the 80s. It's just what cartoon villains did here. I do like that he has a motivation for taking the money, but you did just bring up a point I'd never thought of, which is he's now buying the other yeah. stuff. <laughs> he's going on the internet then and like setting up a bank account and sending them money and going about as we normally would to acquire any merchandise. But th- this is not the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm trying to make is we get into a pretty good battle here where Aunt May is taken hostage and he drags her up the side of the building and it requires Spider-Man to get into his first real confrontation with our villain. I'm looking forward to this. She takes an umbrella and hits <laughs> Oc on the face And I think, oh my god, he's blind. He will now have to rely on those arms. He will no longer have to have an independent mind to what they are doing. He will have to be beholden to what they are doing. I got very excited. Is Doc Ock not blind? No, he's not. He wears those glasses as a fashion choice? <laughs> it's funny you bring that up, Stuart, because as a kid, I always thought he was blind. Of yes, you'd have to be blind to be walking around like that. His eyes became sensitive to the light after the experiment. Now, I don't know where I got that. That might not actually be in the movie, but that's why Doc Ock wears glasses. That's not in the movie, or maybe it was in the extended cut. or It might have been in the comic book adaptation I read, but... Other than, it's bright out. He's not blind. I think I would be much more excited about the character of Doc Ock if it was more confrontational between what his arms wanted and what he wanted. As it is, it just feels like, oh, they're crazy arms and they're going to do the worst possible thing in any given scenario. But I feel like I wanted motivation that just really isn't there. And this moment told me something that it didn't end up coming to be i was waiting for it to make sense and then when i finally realized he wasn't blind later into the movie i really felt lost as to who doc ock was and what he wants and why spider-man has to get involved at all I'm not liking anything that you're proposing happened to this character. I like that he is in control of the arms I do like that the arms are protective of him in that car scene like you mentioned He's not in control of the arms. He is. Arms are telling him what to do. They're telling him in general, go rob a bank, but he's the one saying, let's grab Aunt May. He's not going, oh my God, why is the arm grabbing Aunt May? He's like, no, I'm taking Aunt May. Arm, get her. So they're all in unison. I wouldn't like it if it was a guy trapped by arms in the middle. That would not work for me as a supervillain in a superhero movie. You know, Stuart, you bring up the umbrella, and here's what that it symbolizes to me. We get this great action scene. Like, I'm enjoying this whole scene in the bank and as they're crawling up this building and fighting each other. And yet another cameo, our Stan Lee cameo. I couldn't find Stan really? Lee in this movie. I, where where was he? Blink and you miss it, really. Oh, I did blink. <laughs> I watched this movie seven times and I only caught it five. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Then I feel better. I usually am pretty good at this game. It is a fraction of a second. He grabs someone and yanks them out from some falling rock while Aunt May's being dragged up the wall, just like he did in the first one, but a much shorter shot. Oh. Whoever is responsible for booking these cameos didn't do him a full service. Usually they do a big spotlight on him. I usually feel like it's an, it's not even a game to find him. He usually kind of comes out and it's easy to spot. This one, yeah. Maybe he wasn't 
feeling like standing around a set. And then you get the scene where Aunt May goes flying in the air and just catches herself like on a gargoyle or on a ledge with her umbrella. Yeah. I don't know if that's supposed to be funny. Why else would you do that? It's silly. It's Mary Poppins. <laughs> I don't know what this film wants to be. Is it a melodrama soap opera like Spider-Man so often is? We get these great action scenes like this one, and then we get these comedy bits. Like, yeah, there's five different arms telling this movie what to do. The tone for me is very consistent, and that is silly. I do feel like this is a very, very silly, silly movie. I disagree completely i can't begin to relate to the statements you two are making i do think there are humorous lighter moments in this which is very fitting of the spider-man character but i wouldn't call it a silly movie i was happy to see aunt may get some gumption and whack doc over the head i liked seeing peter save his aunt you know when he couldn't save his uncle this is all working for me i'm liking ak as the villain i'm liking spider-man as the hero who is losing his powers he is not able to shoot his webs by this point little by little his powers are failing him and that's a very interesting hook for me far more interesting than ak ak's gonna disappear for a while again we're gonna focus on peter and his powers and his personal problems yeah did doc ak rob some more banks after this scene because he gets away with like one bag of money and he's able to build a super fusion lab i guess out of that one bag of coins that he stole it so doesn't matter. I mean, that's what I realize is by the time Doc Ock comes back in the picture, anything that I was hoping to be or his personal conflicts or whatever he was going through, it doesn't even matter. You're right, Arnie. What they care about here is Spider-Man, his problems, his powers. And why is that a problem? I'm tired of superhero movies where the superhero takes the back seat. I'm tired of Michael Keaton being second bill to Jack Nicholson. I like that this is a superhero movie about a superhero like Kick-Ass, and I do like this villain, but I don't need him on screen all the time constantly causing damage. I like what we get here with the Peter Parker story, and I'm disheartened to hear you both go, oh, we just want smash em up fights. Well, that's what's working for me in this. I don't have anything against this being a hero-driven movie. I complain about that with the Burton films. Like, where's Batman? Let's see Batman some more. It's all about execution, though. That's great. Tell a hero's journey story, but this is one about impotence and midlife crisis, and that's not what I want. I do not see that at all. You don't see that when he can't shoot his web? No, no, I don't. I see it as his losing his power, but I don't see midlife crisis. I see crisis of faith, crisis of conscience. I think you're stretching far too much into midlife crisis. If he went out and bought a sports car... I'll go with you. If he starts to lose his hair, fine. This is not a midlife crisis. I, I can't go with that either. He's having performance anxiety. He is so stressed about who he is and what he's doing that he can no longer be the hero that is required to fight people like Ock. That's what's happening. And that's fine. I feel like that is a subplot. I don't know that I needed it to carry the whole movie. I feel it makes the movie feel very foreign to me and relies so heavily on on repetitive scenes, scenes that we see time and time again. We not only see a scene of him getting a hot dog and watching the cops speed by, later we see a kid being beaten up by bullies and him walking by. I feel like we get information again and again and again that emphasizes, man, it really sucks to be Peter Parker. I don't feel like there's a lot of development here. If you want to spend time on a character, I'm definitely cool with that. I think Spider-Man could be as interesting as Doc Ock. What I guess I'm saying is, I don't understand 
Doc Ock, and Peter's problems are being beaten to death. And I don't see it that way. I think it's all in the delivery. I mean, what you talked about is all in a great montage done to raindrops keep falling on my head. It's a very short montage. It does drive home certain points, but it also shows Peter being happy that he's not going after the cops. It's showing, as montages do, a progression. When Peter has this montage, he's just left his outfit in a garbage can in a wonderful homage to Spider-Man number 50 that made me have a geek gasm in the theater that they went that close to the comic book material. And this is a progression of Peter Parker enjoying his spider vacation to Peter Parker suddenly going, you know, maybe I'm being a little self-indulgent here. Here's the biggest problem. I mean, how he decides to be in that homage to Amazing Spider-Man number 50, Spider-Man no more. He's slowly losing his powers. He goes to see a doctor, which this was a piece of comedy that I liked. The whole, I'm having these dreams. No, my friend's having these dreams that he's Spider-Man. Like, okay, I like that. It was funny. But it ends up in him having a dream or a vision of Uncle Ben whose murder he caused, who he could have prevented at least. And he's like, eh, screw you. I'm going back on what I told you. Like, to his uncle that was a father figure. This is after a scene where his Aunt May is only alive because he acted as Spider-Man. So not only does he cause the death of his uncle, he regrets saving his aunt. And he figures it would be better if he never took that role. This is infuriating. Technically, Aunt May wouldn't have been in danger if he hadn't become Spider-Man and Ock needed a hostage. She still needed to save the house. I don't think the pizza delivery money tips was going to save the house for her. No, but she would have been in the bank, but Ock would have just taken the coins and left if Spider-Man hadn't fought him. The vision of Uncle Ben, is it a vision? Is it a ghost? Does this movie have ghosts? Because there's two visions. We get William Dafoe later and Uncle Ben now. They say things that don't feel like the character's subconscious to me. They say things like we're going to speak for the character who died last movie, making me truthfully wonder if there are phantoms i agree with you i didn't really like the fact that we saw uncle ben again i it was one of those things where like i thought we were done with this but when we get back to defoe i'm like ah well that makes sense if you're gonna bring back defoe then i guess you needed to bring back his alter ego as it were the two father figures in peter's head i kind of went with it more there let me tell you about what the movie that i'm seeing at this point i'm seeing a time capsule I'm seeing a vision of New York City three years after Bin Laden attacked it, scared and wanting to retreat from the world. This is a movie that only could have come about in the first few years after 9-11. It is questioning the very validity of comic book heroes and real evil and wondering, wouldn't it be a nice fantasy not to have to deal with villainly? Wouldn't it be nice to retreat and be self-absorbed and not have to carry the problems of the world on our head? It was exactly the movie of the moment. And I believe that is why it was so celebrated when it first came out. It was capturing New York City in microcosm here thematically that's what the movie's doing but we're well beyond 9-11 now and things have normalized and villains have been punished and i don't know that i would feel the same way watching it then that i do now i feel like it's a strangely anxious movie now well the thing is i never saw it as a 9-11 thing because this is right out of the comics from the 60s 
well before 9-11. This exact thing happened. Spider-Man's neuroses took away his powers. He went to see a shrink. Just because something happened whenever it did, it was presented in this moment now. They could have picked story strands from any era of the comic. It seems apropos, and it seems like it was celebrated as the greatest superhero movie ever at the time because it was really talking to us about how we were feeling about the world. It was, in the moment, the most relevant superhero until the year later when Batman would take on the age of terrorism. But it felt like the first superhero movie that was really dealing with the themes of the time and not just providing happy, easy answers to villainy and evil. Now, I really see it's both a strength and a harm to this movie that is so wrapped up in that anxiety, that is so much about neurosis here. I called it Woody Allen's superhero movie, and that's what I'm seeing. I don't disagree. I'm just enjoying seeing it. I'm liking the humor. I'm liking the neuroses. You know, in the extended cut, there's a lot more scenes that I really feel are extraneous, but there is one great scene during this whole Singing in the Rain montage, and it's J. Jonah Jameson, who got Spider-Man's outfit from a garbage man, they put J.K. Simmons in the spandex outfit and he's jumping around his office on the desk and things, making thwip, thwip noises and pretending to be Spider-Man. <laughs> okay. It's like, J.J. is one of my favorite characters in these films. Why did they not put that in the theatrical cut? Now I need to go see this. He has a field day in this. I don't feel like we needed another scene of J.J. dancing on Spider-Man's grave. That's <laughs> He's, as much as Doc Ock, maybe even more so, a real villain for the character. He is great in this film, just like the last one, the embodiment of the character. But I laughed so hard because it was so unexpected. I've seen this movie many times, but this is my first time seeing the 2.1 cut. So when that happened, I was busting up to see J.K. Simmons... <laughs> cigar in mouth crew cut haircut in the tights doing the moves maybe it's because i went in you know having read 500 issues of this and just enjoyed revisiting that memory from my teen years comics i hadn't read in well over a decade when this movie came out seeing them brought to life in a way that is very well done and i want to give some props right now to mcguire last time i said i didn't think he was very well done as spider-man this movie he nails it as parker and as spider-man i believe both of them this time i think he's giving his best performance right here well, he is making 17 million <laughs> i would hope one thing I know that he's really doing a lot, I didn't notice it the last time, but he's got the rubber face going on. I mean, he gives so many weird, like, puffy-faced expressions here. I mean, he really gives the kind of performance that a Jim Carrey would give in The Mask or Jim Carrey's originator, Bruce Campbell, you know, in some of those Evil Dead performances. It's so big. It's so cartoony. He really is listening to Raimi, and he is really trying to embody Raimi's sensibility of... Yeah, Looney Tunes. He's really embodying that. And yet we don't lose the heart. I mean, I always thought that Maguire was very good at getting the heart of the character. And that movie was all the best parts of it were its sentimentality. Here, I'm getting more of his sort of goofy, bloated face as he flies through the air and puffs up his cheeks. And it's a much more physical performance here. I feel like he's doing a lot more. He has to prove that his back isn't keeping him down. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? You said Bruce Campbell. I hadn't thought it, but you're right. Because if you watch the first Evil Dead, Bruce Campbell is kind of a 
pansy guy. His name's Ashley. He just doesn't seem that tough. You fast forward to Army of Darkness, he's got a chainsaw for a hand and he's kicking ass. You're right. This time, Maguire has made that step that Campbell made. And so I'm buying Maguire now as a hero and yet still as a nerd. When he's walking down the street with the glasses on, I just love that scene because he's so dorky and he's like some of the biggest nerds I've ever known. And yet when he's doing the heroic things like later on when he's saving the bus, I buy him. I think McGuire is owning this movie and that's a lot of the reason why I'm going with it. I don't disagree. I I think he's good here and it's a problem only in that he is so altruistic. I feel the same way about him as the last movie, but the people around him are such disappointments, particularly MJ, that it's tougher to watch him get the crap beat out of him. You know, the original was a fantasy and how do I overcome the problems around me? This one is you can be all the power in the world and it doesn't change the fact that you have a miserable life. I don't know that I'm liking this or not, but I am feeling like, wow, a lot of time is being devoted to this and that this is something I've never seen before. I can honestly say that this feels like this is someone really going for something that hadn't been done in comic book movies before. I do turn against Peter a little bit. It's a little crappy that, oh, you're engaged. Now I love you. He's just as wishy-washy as Mary Jane. Uh, come on. He's decided he's given up Spider-Man. That's the only reason he couldn't hook up with her. He's given that up now. She just happens to be married. It makes him kind of a dick going after <laughs> uh, an engaged woman, but he couldn't do that until he gave up the spider outfit. But I don't feel like she's really engaged either. I mean, because this guy has been in the background and we haven't seen a moment in which he's earned her heart, there's no way that she can't be won back over. I mean, really, the issue at hand between all of the soap opera stuff, and it was underlined by Octavius before he became Doc Ock, was that Parker needs to be truthful. That love is about not having secrets. And the presumption is if MJ could ever know who he really was and not hear his excuses, if he heard the truth of it, that this would wipe away all their problems. That's sort of what's underpinning all of this soap opera stuff. So at the same time that I hate MJ for how she behaves and throwing fits and just being a fickle person, at the same time, all of this kind of is Peter's fault because he is not being honest with her. I do like the scene where it's made just abundantly clear that MJ isn't sure about her marriage when she does the upside down kiss with her husband. Yeah, that's how you know how lame sauce he really is, is because she's trying to marry Spider-Man. That's her ideal. That's who she wants to be married to. Not Peter and not this chump. So she recreates the upside down kiss and is like, you can just see it on her face. She's like, eh, this is not going to work. You might as well return the gifts now. You know, it's (laughs) not going to happen. And you mentioned him being truthful. He is truthful to Aunt May about what was going on that night, which... I didn't think was that big of a deal, really. (laughs) Aunt May storms out. I'm like, really? Oh. Well, I think she's just upset. I don't know that it's what he told her that's upsetting. It's having to reprocess the death. I think that was it. Because you're right. It's not that concerning. Uh, What I want to know is when does she put it together that Peter is Spider-Man? Is it in that moment? Does she put it together? 
She absolutely knows. He never mentions that he had the power. Like, that's the thing. Aunt May, okay, maybe she's reliving the loss of Uncle Ben, and that's why she pulls away. But she can't be standing there looking at her nephew, Peter, thinking, yeah, he really could have stopped that crook. There's the scene when Aunt May's moving out of her house, and she goes, he wants to be Spider-Man. He needs heroes. And it's done in such a way that it's like, does she know? Doesn't she know? It's really heavy-handed, but she does know he makes his living taking pictures of Spider-Man. So she knows he has a connection to Spider-Man. Does she know he is Spider-Man? That's ambiguous. Well, I really wanted to hear you guys knowing the comic more, whether she knew or not, because I take that scene very much as being the big scene of the movie. There's been all of this hand-wringing about, do we need superheroes? Is it any good? Can anyone take on the problems of the world and face down evil? And here's the big metaphorical scene, you know, every American flag flying on the block, and she's realizing that Peter's not going to save her, and she's just going to move out and live in a smaller place, and she's lecturing him without ever calling attention to it. To me, it's very obvious. I know your secret. The world needs Spider-Man. You need to do it for this little nine-year-old here. Do it for the kids. It's where the movie kind of finds its voice, and it's where he begins to try again. It's, in my estimation, the biggest dramatic scene of the movie. That's my problem, is that this movie, that Spider-Man finds his voice through this monologue. Like, they have to tell us, here is the thesis of the movie. We still need heroes, even though it's hard for that person. We still need them. They inspire others to do good. Like, we couldn't see that play out and Spider-Man no more where Spider-Man gives up being Spider-Man. He's inspired to be Spider-Man again because he sees someone getting beat up that reminds him of his uncle and that he's been fighting his whole life to change that moment and that he can't just give that up. It's not a monologue. I hate that it's a monologue in this film that changes him. It's not just a monologue. I mean, there is the scene where he goes past the burning building, which calls back to the first movie. He knows there's a child in there who... If he were Spider-Man, he could save them. And he goes in powerless to still try to be that hero. It's more than just the speech. The speech may galvanize it, but it's Peter realizing that he was an important person trying to save people and still, without his powers, now truthfully risking his life to try to save someone. And the realization that someone still died in the fire. And had he been Spider-Man, he could have saved them both. And just because he's decided to be a hero again doesn't mean that it's going to happen. The next scene is, I'm back, and he breaks his back. I mean, it isn't the sheer desire to be a superhero that ultimately transforms him. My theory on this is it had to be MJ. At the end of it, she's the reason he's Spider-Man to begin with. The reason why he was standing underneath that genetically created spider was to take her picture, and he only got to do that because he had the gumption to go and ask her for it. She's the driving force to all his powers. She is why he is Spider-Man. So that when she's finally taken hostage, that is what finally allows the web-slinging juice to start flowing again. But he had already decided at that point, even though his powers weren't fully back, I got the impression they were somewhat back, 
because he came to that cafe to tell her, no, I don't love you. I can't be with you because I'm going to be Spider-Man, even though my powers aren't fully here. That was a little confusing for me, is because he's in that fire, he's doing things no human could do, right? He's holding himself up with one hand, throwing a child with another. No human being could do that. It's intermittent. It's not like he ever lost it completely. It's not, I stepped into the crystal thing and got zapped, and now all my power has gone away. It is, sometimes I can't get it up because I'm so stressed out. And so, in certain moments, he can rise to the occasion, but he can't rely on himself to consistently be the guy who can get around town. He could be in mid-swing and it gives out. That's the problem. What really gives him the impetus to believe in himself and be that character. It's all psychological. He could always do it all along. It was MJ is in danger. It had to be that. Nothing else was going to work. We wouldn't accept it that Doc Ock had just broken into another bank and he was going to do it. It had to be because MJ is in danger. You know, it's a beautiful looking scene that Peter, his, he's talking to MJ, trying to have the talk. His spider senses go off. He jumps, grabs her just in time to stop this car from smashing into him. And, it, and it's beautiful looking, except it makes no damn sense. Doc Ock is going to get Peter because he's been told that's his connection to Spider-Man. That's how he can find Spider-Man. And then he throws a damn car at the guy, not knowing he has spider senses and he'll get out of the way. <laughs> You know, I hadn't really thought about it, but yes, he does not know that Peter is Spider-Man. Because Harry, at this point, does not know that Peter is Spider-Man. It would be more helpful, at this point, if Harry did. But he does not, and so you're right, he was almost going to kill his only lead. Still a cool-looking scene. He's not in his right mind, but it is, yeah, it is very cool-looking. It really... A good scene. And we get Mary Jane back in danger, which, again, another callback to the first movie. And in that cafe, she showed she had suspicions that Peter was Spider-Man anyway. We've known for a while that she knows without knowing. I mean, that's just been part of the fun of their relationship is everyone is pretending what's going on is surface level when they must know deep down what he's really doing. I've thought she knew since she touched her lips at the end of the last movie. Right. But... You guys have said you wanted action. The last half hour of this film, after that car goes through the window, is nonstop balls-to-the-wall action. We get some great fights between Spider-Man and Doc Ock. They have a really kinetic fight at the top of, like, a clock tower. Yeah, it's not New York anymore. I, I was living in Chicago at the time, so I knew that they filmed part of the movie there. But I could even recognize part of our transit system in Chicago is the elevated train, that loop, that train battle that's happening, that is all Chicago streets in downtown Chicago. Yeah, I didn't think the subways came above ground in New York. They used to. They do in certain parts, but... Not in Manhattan. Yeah, there's nothing like what they have there. I'm with you, Arnie. I'm finally getting some action. I, you know, I'm not going with the soap opera stuff, but this is some great action. The, this fight on the train. They do throw out a couple bad puns. You know, you got a train to catch. It is a Spider-Man movie. <laughs> Fair enough. The thing is, Doc Ock is supposed to be capturing Spider-Man alive. And nothing he's doing is showing he's trying to bring this guy in alive. <laughs> you don't pull your punches on Spider-Man. You just got to trust that when you maim him, he won't die immediately. There's no beef. You understand. They have no personal reason to fight. He is there strictly so that he can get the thing for his experiment. I see that as a problem. You don't see that as a problem, Arnie? I'm enjoying the fights. Fair enough. Yeah, and Stuart, 
I agree with what you're saying, but I'm like Arnie. I'm enjoying the fights. It's a good scene. Well, I'm not saying we shouldn't have fights. I'm just saying the best fights are always ones that are underlined by dramatic tension. I don't care if this movie was all talk if it had dramatic tension. The fact of the matter is the fights, as cool as they are, aren't in service of the story that they're telling whenever there isn't a fight. When this movie came out, I'd never seen a movie fight like this one. So... The fact that there is no dramatic tension between these two characters, and keep in mind, I had 30 years of history with these characters that I was carrying as baggage to see them fight. And so this fight was just really good for me, and the fact that it doesn't symbolize a child's distancing himself from his father and choosing to go his own way... No, that doesn't impact me worth one iota. Arnie, you cannot care about the subtext in, like, a fight. There is no reason for any of this fighting. As Jacob pointed out, his job is to get this guy alive, not hurt him. But you're not going to get Spider-Man alive without hurting him, is what I'm saying. Spider-Man is tough. He's wily. You've got to just keep attacking until he's down. I think this could be an easy fix just if Harry had said, I want Spider-Man dead, and Doc Ock said, okay. I mean, I could definitely go along with it better if it was just an assassin hit. But the fact that he is supposed to be not hurting Spider-Man, he has to deliver him alive. And more to the point, he then has to take a stone and go incognito back to his Manhattan lab at the docks so that nobody notices. I mean, at this point, he's putting a glaring spotlight on himself as if they wouldn't notice anyway, even in New York, a man with eight arms after he tears up the city where he goes next. It's not helpful for anybody to go about this way, but it is... Have I mentioned he's insane? Yes. I mentioned that that is lame (laughs) and that it is to the detriment of the movie that they've developed Doc Ock so poorly. Here's my question for you, Arnie. Is this train scene like from one of the comics? Because it just seems weird that he holds it back like that. He spins his webs and, and tries to hold it. Wouldn't he just make a big web for the train to run into and catch it? In a cut scene in the first film, he caught a helicopter that way. But then he wouldn't be Christ-like. In his oh, place. I hate that. This is where I turn against the scene. I'm loving the fight. For some reason, his mask starts on fire because he has to take it off. I guess so people know he's just a kid. And then he's passed down, arms out. He even has the gash in the side like Christ who was stabbed in the side by one of the centurions. Like, I hate messianic poses in films. I'm not a huge fan of them. Listen to our Alien 3 podcast if you can to find that out. It's the last weekend. You better do it now. But I like it here. I don't think it's overt. I like it because it's subtle. If you're looking for it, it's there. It is not subtle. It may be one many things. It may be touching. I'm not even saying I, I dislike it. Actually, I might be saying that. But, <laughs> but it is not subtle. They are very clearly showing, literalizing the way that Peter has selflessly sacrificed himself for all of New York and that New York pays him in kind. This is better than them throwing trash at Green Goblin off a bridge to have it be that they're going to stand up for him in this way. It ends up amounting to not because Doc Ock just kind of pushes everyone out of the way. But Which is what I love is it's a callback to that first movie. It still has the we're New Yorkers who are going to stand together vibe. But here Doc Ock's like, okay, slunk. I love it. It's a great way 
to twist what we did last time and show Doc Ock is a better villain. I don't know. I feel like if you want to give New Yorkers their moment, they actually need to win. It's a strange choice to have their victory so easily undermined. My other problem with this is the whole time of this film, right from the beginning, we're supposed to believe that New York hates Spider-Man. He talks about how the Daily Bugle has turned the people of New York against Spider-Man. Yet we got bums in the streets plucking that 60s Spider-Man cartoon theme song on their violins. I mean, <laughs> the people here, it's good to have you back, Spider-Man. You're like, we're not going to tell anyone who you are. Like, I never believe the city hates this guy, that they're always rooting for him. I actually am going to defend that. I think it's cool that there is propaganda that creates a negative impression of Spider-Man, but that the real New Yorkers, they know who he is. I mean, anyone that's ever met him in person, they know that he isn't to be reviled. It's really a comment about J. Jonah Jameson and his quest to discredit Spider-Man for whatever reason. And even he has to admit right before the costume gets snatched that he was all wrong here. I mean, I think New York loves Spider-Man and always has. They just need to create the feeling that Peter feels he's unloved, unappreciated. You know, he's suffering on the cross, not knowing he's going to be a messiah. What about the third plot going on? And it's very much a C plot, but Harry Osborn is a thread that goes throughout this whole movie from the early birthday scene all the way through and his hunt for Spider-Man and his wanting to get revenge for Spider-Man killing his father. I wasn't too fond of Franco last time. He also has really... I think, grown and matured. In the last movie, he was James Franco in name. Here, he is James Franco, and I'm enjoying his performance and wondering where it's going to go. It seems like got to get to that third part of the trilogy because we're not really going to get Green Goblin in this one. They're Green Goblin Jr. He seems like he's here to move the plot along. We need to get Spider-Man in trouble. Doc Ock doesn't know his secret identity, so why would he have any conflict with Spider-Man? He's not trying to recruit him for some mysterious team-up like the Green Goblin. Oh, he needs Teridium. There's only 26 pounds of it on the Earth, and Harry Osborn's the only one rich enough to get it for him, so since Harry has a grudge against Spider-Man. That's how we'll get Doc Ock and Spider-Man to fight. He just seems to be put in here to move the plot along to me. Well, he is the second villain, but he's a human one. And I think that's what I take issue with. You know, I was not expecting the surprise we get at the end of this movie. I was totally thrown when I realized they were going to take him into a supernatural realm. But having known that now and thinking about this kind of team up and the negative role that he plays here, I almost wish that it had happened much sooner. I feel like this movie would be stronger if it was Doc Ock and Green Goblin 2 collaborating together than, yeah, this spoiled rich drunk making some deal with Doc Ock. Doc Ock has nothing against Spider-Man. He only needs some minerals or something to make his lab complete. That he's just doing it to get a stone feels lame. And I feel like it could only be improved if Harry were played differently. I don't know that it's Franco. I just feel like it's awkward in general, the way that it has been written in here. And Franco's not in help. Some of his line deliveries, you know, in that first explosion, he's like, well, now I have nothing left but to hate Spider-Man. I mean, th that's some bad delivery there. That's that, It's very unconvincing. I guess... I also don't really understand why he's holding on so much to the death of his father. It seems irrational, and maybe that's the point. But I don't buy the idea that he really believes Spider-Man killed his father. There's no reason to conclude that. I do buy it. I, I mean, he sees Spider-Man over his father's dead body. 
Yeah, but what's the logic of that? Why would Spider-Man kill Norman Osborn? Like, what evidence in the film is there in that first film that would lead any character in that movie to think Spider-Man would kill him? Nobody even knows who Spider-Man is. So I think that Nebula's motivations go with the mask. But I am with Harry's plight. I'm with Harry's vengeance. But then he gets back and he is unmasked by Harry. And again, I'm liking Franco's performance in this. And I like his reaction when he finds out it's Peter. I agree, Arnie. At this point, I'm, I like Franco's performance. I buy that he's totally shocked, that he can't believe it's his best friend. But the scene's not allowed to go anywhere. It's, hey, man, MJ's in trouble. She's a friend of both of ours, and he's going to hurt New York with his son. Let me go. This goes somewhere. It'll be a few days when we discuss Spider-Man 3, but... Yeah, I'm going to have to wait three years for the next film. Well, it is establishing a relationship here, and that is they both love MJ. Franco tries to be cool about it, and he lacks the self-confidence, much like Peter, to follow through ultimately. But yes, I feel like it is a Achilles heel for both of them. And that's the only reason he lets him go. Again, MJ is the guiding principle here. Had it been anybody else, he wouldn't have done it just to stop the fusion experiment. He wouldn't have done it for any other character. He did it because it was MJ. And his love of MJ is apparently slightly higher than his hatred for his father's killer. (laughs) But he finds out it's Peter and he still buys that he killed his dad. I'm glad that no future movie will have to deal with the same conflict. I like it when dynamics change. I like the idea that we've had, you're my best friend and I hate the person that your alternate identity is. I'm glad that they did it and I'm glad that we're done with that. And I'm glad that whatever happens next, it'll be something different. But I can't say that it's totally fulfilling that it kind of stops here. I did want something to go beyond where they left it. I agree in so far as I wanted more, but I gotta say, you know, we'll talk about that last scene in a little bit, Yeah, but it left me in a great place, you know, for the sequel. It's a great ending. I'm wondering if it might not have been an even greater middle, but we'll get there. Let's take care of Doc Ock first. This end fight, I like it, but... At this point, I really feel the high point was the train fight and the clock tower fight. So whatever they have to offer me here feels a little bit late. I just think it's kind of funny that it's just presumed that this is going to fail. (laughs) That there's no way that this genius scientist could actually get this right. They poured all this money into it. Everyone developed it. But of course, it will never work. You can't let scientists experiment. They will kill us all. It's this (laughs) foregone conclusion that he's destined for it. What if it would work? What if Spider-Man swooped in there to stop him and he actually created a renewable energy source and now the whole planet is changed for the better? Come on, Stuart. Did you see that lab? It's some, like, broken-down shed on a pier. There's no way science is going to work in that lab. <laughs> You're right. He, he was failed by his choice I, of location. I don't even know where you find a power outlet in that lab that he was using. <laughs> I mean, would Spider-Man still unplug it if it actually worked? I don't know. It's only by sheer luck that he's not only crazy, but bad at his job. Well, I think it's the proof is that he's doing the exact same thing again and not trying to figure out what went wrong. He's convinced by his tentacles that he was right, and so he should do it again, only bigger. And by doing it bigger, yeah, he would have destroyed the city. Yeah. And again, I can only presume that the tentacles wanted it because it was about holding power and being in control. It's a theme that this movie dealt with before and i presume again it's a good theme for spider-man power and how you wield it is important 
but there's all this speechifying about you taught me intelligence and privilege and all that. This is not an impactful exchange here. You know, he unmasked, he's trying to prove him something. This is not working, right? Not entirely. It falls a little bit apart here. It's very brief, but I do like that it's not just Spider-Man kicking poor Otto's ass. I like that Otto goes down with the ship. I like that Otto sacrifices himself in a last act of heroism. I like all of that. I guess I just wish there was more than, hey, Otto, it's me, Peter. Parker, brilliant but lazy. Oops, I screwed up. Let me fix this. <laughs> it's a great image of him trying to hold the sun as he's falling into the water. I like it from a visual standpoint, and I agree. I like complicated villains. I like the idea. I would have liked the idea more if it had been a good guy that was struggling to use power for good, but it ended up corrupting him. They kind of half get there. I just feel like, much like Goblin, an underdeveloped villain. And it's weird that this series has the inverse of the Batman series, where those movies are hijacked by their villains, and who cares about the hero? This is the polar opposite in the Spider-Man movies. It is all about our protagonist, and the villains have nebulous agendas that they aren't very good at achieving. I don't know. I liked Ock in this. I just wish it was more than my arms will listen to me now. I would have liked just a little bit more there, but I'm not unfulfilled. I'm enjoying still this whole thing. And I like, I like this whole movie has been Peter's point here. Isn't to defeat Doc Ock. Peter's point here is to rescue Mary Jane and he must support a building from crushing her. Whereas Ock takes care of his own problem. I like that. It's all for MJ. There's an iconic Spider-Man cover where he's like, he's, holding up this entire wall as he's like drowning in the sewer. I felt like that was a nice homage to that iconic cover there where he's holding up that wall so it doesn't fall on Mary Jane. I, I like that moment. Yeah. She's learning what she always knew at that point, too. He's unmasked. So she has finally had the truth told to her. And this will, relationship is forever changed, too. I like that. And I haven't liked Kirsten Dunst much in this movie. Mm. I like her reaction to seeing him unmasked here. Because there's a difference between suspecting and full-on confirmation, oh my god, that's my childhood friend standing there in the Spider-Man outfit holding up a wall. I actually think this is her one good moment in this movie, and it's a good time to have a good moment, because you need me on your side right now, MJ. I, I agree with you, Arnie, because the next time we see her in this film, I'm going to hate her. We cut from this, I, I mean, I feel like this film really learned from Return of the King. We're going to have like six or seven endings. We defeat the bad guy, now we got to resolve Mary Jane marrying football astronaut man. And it turns into a rom-com where she's running through the streets of New York. She realizes it's wrong. I did like the moment with JJ. Call the caterer. Tell him not to open the caviar. Like, some great humor there. You won't find me saying there's a moment with JJ I dislike. Even these moments that I hate the most, if he's in there, I can't totally hate it. But then the slow-mo running through New York, you know, in the wedding dress. I know who my real lover is. I just, ugh. I don't like romantic comedies. I don't like this. You're a jerk. You couldn't sit down and tell football astronaut man that, you know what, I like someone else. It ain't going to work out. She left him a note. <laughs> well, it helps that we don't know who he is and don't have any feelings about him whatsoever, right? Like, no one has any feelings about this guy, good or bad, other than he is a guy who has just been left at the altar. And that makes us sympathetic. But beyond that, he's rich. He's been to the moon. He's privileged. Eh, he'll be all right. He might actually end up better than Peter here. I would have liked it if he was portrayed more like J. Jonah Jameson Jr. You know, give him some jerkish qualities. Make it be good that MJ's running away from him and not 
that she's trapped. Make it J. Jonah Jameson's connections got her her Broadway gig. She's giving up Broadway for Peter. Make her give up something. Yeah, I like that. You know, you say that this is a romantic comedy ending. I don't know that it's so happy. It's happy in the sense that the two people we've wanted or presumably wanted for two movies now finally get together here at the end and that she's willing to make the sacrifice to allow him to spend the time to be Spider-Man that he's impelled to be. But the last shot is not of Spider-Man swinging through the streets saying, Yahoo! It's a cut back to her face and she's starting to crumble. You sense her loneliness. She's watching him go away I don't see her smiling and feeling that go get him tiger moment. I see her conflicted, and it makes me wonder about their future. I don't think these kids have a bright future ahead of them. When I saw this in theaters, I saw that as go get him tiger and saw her kind of like, he's so dreamy at the end. But watching it now, you are right. There's something about that last look. It's very foreboding. These movies end sadly. The last movie ended very bittersweet, and this one too. They don't end on high notes. You think they do, because it's always paired with Spider-Man acrobatics. But the truth of the matter is, the personal stories are always a bit remorseful. None more remorseful than Harry. Mm, indeed. Who gets the visit from the ghost of father past. <laughs> I was so delighted. I wanted to see Defoe again. I didn't know that I wanted to see him again. But here he is, and without that stupid mask. He's creepier in this one scene than possibly even Doc Ark's arms, and those were pretty creepy. So is this a ghost? Is this Harry's inner psyche talking to him? I have to believe that... The only way I can understand this is is that when he became the goblin and split in two, there really were two of him. And that the only one that died when the glider collided into him was Norman Osborn. But that green goblin is, yes, some phantom other that is seeking a new host and maybe can't be killed. I don't know. It's a weird moment. There's no way it can be Harry's inner thoughts. There's no way that Harry's inner thoughts knew about a secret lab behind the mirror. They never alluded to the fact that he knew his father was Green Goblin. They could have set it up that way. I never saw a scene that set it up that way. To me, Green Goblin is a phantom guiding him into being, what, 2.0? Well... That is the same mirror where we had the wonderful Defoe versus Defoe scene last time. Right. I'm going to go on the presumption, and everything I've read supports this, but this was my presumption before my research. There are no ghosts in this movie. I, watching it this time, kind of wondered, but this is, again, Harry had a break in his psyche. It's a bit of a genetic madness carried down from his father, his father, You know, he wasn't a nice guy pre-Green Goblin serum, and post, he just became a real ass. He's a drunk. I mean, it shouldn't be underestimated how much he's been drinking in the second half of this movie. And in fact, he throws his glass at the mirror, and a mirror where the Green Goblin spoke to Norman. I doubt if this was planned, but I love the fact that the Green Goblin spoke from a mirror that hid the Goblin's lab. That is an ingenious retcon. Mm -hmm. So I take it as it's Harry's fractured psyche. I mean, it's not like Norman says anything Harry doesn't know. He just keeps screaming, avenge me, avenge me. And Harry breaks the glass and stumbles upon the lair. Okay. I guess it could play that way. It just, then it becomes a very convenient that, yes, the lab just was behind a glass that he just happened to break. Either way you do it, it's a weird 
but kind of exhilarating moment. I would reject it from a logic basis if it weren't so much fun to see a character I didn't know coming back doing something that I thought should have happened last movie. You know, I mentioned that last movie. I'm like, I almost thought when he was making amends with Harry, he was going to apprentice him and put him on the glider. And he did. They just held on to that a little bit longer than I thought. I didn't know we were coming back to this. And and I really feel that if this was a post-Iron Man film, that this scene, because this isn't quite the last scene in the movie, I really felt this would have been the post-credits scene, because it is (laughs) such a surprise. Very true. Of course, this isn't a Marvel Studios film, but yeah, they may have gone that way. And what I love is that they teased me, though, because I'm instantly thinking... Harry is going to become the new goblin in part three. That is what happened in the comics is Harry discovered his father's lab, blamed Spider-Man for his father's death and became Green Goblin too. And I'm figuring that's what's going to happen. But, you know, Raimi goes out in interviews and goes, well, we don't have a script. That's one way it could go. Or it could go another way. He could realize Spider-Man was actually fighting a big criminal, realizing his father is the Green Goblin now, and the Goblin was known to be killing people. So it could have gone a lot of different ways, and I had to wait three years. It was supposed to be two, like Spider-Man 1 to 2, but I had to wait three years to find out, and that was a long three years for me. Yeah, it's the best hook of the whole movie. It's the time I'm most invested in the movie. It's quite a state to leave us in, and you're right. It has me really looking forward to Tuesday, when we find out what does happen to Harry. And then I think in addition to this being the strongest movie, we end with the strongest song, Vindicated by Dashboard Confessional. I'm not saying it's great, but it's certainly better than what we're going to get on Tuesday and much better than that Nickelback. I don't like Spider-Man's musical taste. I don't think we would share too many of the same favorite groups. You pining for some Prince? Yeah, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I have Vindicated on my iPod. That's all I'm saying. Well, I really don't know which way this is going to go, which is not what I expected when we started the show. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Spider-Man 2? I can't believe it's close. Jacob? If you donated last time and got to hear our Thing reviews, I had some problems with the prequel because I thought it mimicked the John Carpenter film too much. And I get that same sense with Spider-Man 2, that it hits all the same beats as Spider-Man 1. Some, it does a little bit better. Some, not quite as well. The problem is, I've already seen those beats. I'm not one of those people that put a song on repeat and listen to it 30 times in a row. I want to hear something new. This isn't a film for me, but there is an audience for this film. This is like the WWF. Last film, we saw some wrestling, but this one embodies the WWF for me. You get the melodramatic soap opera scenes throughout this, and that doesn't work for me, but I know that works for people. Sounds like, Arnie, it really worked for you. And and I hate WWF, I just want to say. I <laughs> okay. freaking hate it. But, so but, your analysis is pissing me off. I'm sorry. <laughs> but no, what I'm saying is, that's a big draw. People say, you know, wrestling, it's soap opera for guys. And a lot of times when you watch professional sports, though, especially when you to the playoffs the way they build up the drama is they make this soap opera-esque story the cinderella team and the big tough team that's mean to every like there's that soap opera storytelling that works for guys just as much as women and it doesn't work for me but there's an audience that likes that that wants this woody allen take as you said Stuart, on our superheroes i don't like that i'm willing to admit that 
But I like the action scenes here. You know, I'll sit through all the banter on the microphones between matches to get to the fights and enjoy those. This is not a strong recommend for me, but I'm willing to recognize that a lot of people will like the dramatic moments in this movie. They don't work for me. I think for a lot of people, it will work for them. And if they don't, well, there's some damn good action scenes to muddle through those dramatic scenes and and get to. And they're a lot of fun. So I'm going to give this a weak recommend. Stuart. Oh, this is the moment, huh? This is a coin flip. I am yet again opening my mouth, not sure how I'm going to go here. But when I'm processing the movie, here's what I'm thinking. I am, one, impressed that this made so much money. I would not have thought that mass audiences would want a superhero movie structured in this way. And I do think that it benefited from being so close to the wounds of 9-11 and being able to respond in some ways about our recoiling from the horrors of the world and encouraging us to find the superhero within. I think it was the right movie at the right time. We're not quite in that time anymore, and I don't feel like the emphasis is right on this movie. It feels oddly paced, and there's nothing about the drama that I dislike. There's nothing about the characterization or what they do that I dislike. What I dislike is what it doesn't give me and the way that it doesn't put this together. I think my closest comparative here is Ang Lee's Hulk. This is not a recommendable movie for me. It's the next best thing. It is an admirable failure. It does not work in the ways that I need the story to work, but I am very impressed with it. And I think it ultimately will come down to how much you love Spider-Man. If you love Spider-Man and can't get enough Spider-Man, this is the movie for you. But I wanted a battle. I wanted Spider-Man and something else. And it's because that something else was weak. That Dr. Octopus ended up being such a non-issue to the story is going to just prevent it from making it over the hill and being a recommend. So mild, 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 not recommend. Strong recommend. Strong, strong, strong recommend. Now, maybe it's because, like Stuart said, I like Spider-Man. And I think after the first movie, most of the country liked Spider-Man and couldn't get enough of him. But, you know, the extended cut of Spider-Man 2 is called Spider-Man 2.1, which makes this Spider-Man 2.0, and I think that's very apt. It is an upgrade over the last one, and I liked the last one a lot, but this one is even better. Wow. We get a better Spider-Man here. We get a better villain here. We get all of the personal drama that we got through Peter's origin story through the Peter losing his powers, regaining his powers. We get the love story with MJ that we had last time, and this time he gets the girl at the end. I saw the movie seven times for this review, but I've seen this movie 70 times because it's on FX a lot, and I always (laughs) turn it on. I think this film is exciting during the action parts, funny during the comedic parts, and touching during the dramatic parts. It never hits a sour note. I can't even relate to what you guys have said. And I really want our listeners to tell me if they can, because this whole time you two might as well have been speaking Swahili as far as me comprehending your points. I just don't see it. That's funny, Arnie, because whenever I hear someone say at the time when this came out that it was the greatest superhero movie ever, and I saw it, I'm like, huh? They haven't seen many superhero movies then, because this ain't the greatest ever. Let me say... I think I've seen my fair share of superhero movies and reviewed them for this show, plus a plethora that I haven't reviewed for this show. It's 
certainly up there. It may be the best. It's right up there with X-Men First Class and Avengers and Kick-Ass and Iron Man. And I just want to iterate, I think by being forced into saying recommend or not recommend, sometimes we get characterized when we don't recommend something as disliking it. I don't dislike this movie. I think it's really weird. I had a hard time getting a handle on this movie. It was awkward. I felt weird about it. I think my issues are I could not find the movie I was looking for in it. I'm not saying it's a failure as a movie. It obviously was a big hit. Obviously, many people like it. I'm saying for me, I can't understand you saying that it's exciting, that Ock is scary. Those things to me are just as foreign here. I feel like there are key elements to a superhero movie that aren't here and makes it a very peculiar bird. No, we didn't get the vulture this time. (laughs) No, uh, but I want to stress, I'm not saying this is a bad movie. I'm saying I would not watch this again. And I'm saying I can't get enough of this movie. And and Arnie, I'm trying to recognize you and and those have that same feeling. This is not a movie for me, but I could see why this appeals to others. Maybe my analogy didn't work with professional wrestling, but I could understand why people like this film, but it is not for me. and, And so that lowers my recommend. And I wouldn't think this movie is for me because long time now playing listeners will know me as one who may not have patience for an action movie that waits over a half an hour for its first action scene. But because of the humor, because of the romance, because of the performances, this movie carries me like 13 foot tentacles. Strong recommend. Well, it's not surprising. I do think, out of all of us, you're the one that loves Spider-Man the most. To me, superheroes can be interchangeable, but for you, what I'm wondering at this point is, can Raimi and Maguire do any wrong here? I mean, can you be unhappy with this character? Is your goodwill towards Spider-Man going to carry you through all the problems, even the problems I see that you don't? Well, the really long time now playing listeners will know the answer to that question, but (laughs) the newer ones will have to wait till Tuesday to find out when we discuss Spider-Man 3. So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me for this incomprehensible conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for coming on here and saying words that is like word salad (laughs) that I cannot form into sentences and make sense. Well, the the point is that we find a language together. I feel like I understand where you're coming from here. I hope that a little of my point came through, even if you don't agree. No. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely not. I will never cede anything that you said. Okay, cool. Your final addition in the middle of my final thought helped to clarify it. But a lot of what you said throughout, still, the... No. no. That's what he's heard the whole time. When I'm editing this show, I'm just going to be sitting here going, WTF, WTF, <laughs> WTF. <laughs> I hope other people have heard it if you haven't. I hope that I'm clear on this. I guess we'll continue this on into the forums. But yes, next week, it's Spider-Man 3, the conclusion of the Raimi trilogy. And... The amazing Spider-Man is just about to open. I will admit that while I was a bit tepid on this reboot, the trailer that came with Avengers, all the new materials, the fact that Avengers isn't standing between me and it now, I'm pretty excited. It could work. There's many things I like here, and I think that while the idea of going through an origin story is not exciting, it does seem to like it's going a different tack. Uh, with it. I mean, by exploring the parents who we've never seen at this point, that seems to be something new in an origin. 
And just a reminder to listeners, this is your last chance to hear our Prometheus thoughts, our entire Alien series ending with Prometheus. I'm just going to say, my very favorite series I've ever done. I had looked for it so long, and I'm really proud of what we did with the show. I think that they're great shows, and I hope you can join us. You get those with a donation of $10 or more. Details are on our website, but on July 1st, those go into the vault with Jaws and Child's Play and all of our previous donation podcast and if you really want to help our show out remember your donations do keep us on the air or the internet or the wire $25 or more you get all of the alien film reviews plus three more the Steven Spielberg alien film reviews close encounters of the third kind ET and war of the worlds Jacob, I know you're the huge Close Encounters fan. I was the E.T. fan, and Stuart was the War of the Worlds fan. And you can hear his War of the Worlds book thoughts over at Books and Nachos. Another contentious podcast. (laughs) Yes, $25 and hear us argue more. (laughs) I think we broke into a fight a few times in that one. There would have been one. Yeah, it was kind of crazy. So until next time, remember, with great podcasts come great responsibility not to punch my (laughs) co-hosts. It's all my fault. I drove Spider-Man away. He was the only one who could have stopped Octavius. Yes, Spider-Man was a hero. I just couldn't see it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing Spider-Man Retrospective Series. It's good to have you back, Spider-Man. Part of our Marvel Comics Movie Retrospective Series. It's hip, it's now, it's wild, and how? Crawl on the World Wide Web to nowplayingpodcast.com each Tuesday and Friday as we review another Spider-Man movie through the release of The Amazing Spider-Man in July. What are you waiting for? Chinese New Year? Go, go, go! And be sure to visit the Venganza Media Gazette at VenganzaMedia.com forward slash gazette to read Arnie's reviews of every episode of the 1970s Spider-Man TV series. Far be it for me to interfere with the First Amendment. Be my guest. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, go to our archives. You can find reviews of other comic-based movie series, such as The Avengers, Batman, X-Men, Blade, Ghost Rider, and Punisher. Hey, where are all my comic books? Oh, those dreadful things... I gave those away. We also have non-comic-based movie reviews, such as Star Trek, Rocky, Transformers, The X-Files, Tron, and many more. There are bigger things happening here than me and you. You will also find individual movie reviews, such as Green Lantern, Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. I am so loving this. Oh, me too. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, Be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Game. Looks like just in the nick of time. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. I'll be there. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I'm going. I'll be here when you get back. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Everybody needs help sometimes, Peter. Even Spider-Man. You can find a donate button using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Meat. I'll send you a nice box of Christmas meat. Best I can do. Get out of here.
You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcasts by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. Looks uncomfortable. It gets kind of itchy. It rides up in the crotch a little bit, too. Now Playing's Spider-Man Retrospective Series is edited by Arnie. Misery, 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 that's what you've chosen. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. And I've never even seen his face. Now Playing is not affiliated with Marvel Enterprises or Columbia Pictures. Spider-Man and all that the Marvel Universe contains is the property and trademark of the Disney Company. And no infringement is intended. What are you, his lawyer? Get out of here. Let him sue me. Get rich like a normal person. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. I missed the part where that's my problem. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production. Copyright 2012. All rights reserved. Enough said. Harry sets up a meeting between Pete... Harry sets up a meeting between Pete... Harry sets up a meeting between Peter and the physicist. This clarifying moment brings Peter... It's literally like Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers, (laughs) Peter's powers. And to try to not pop my peas into the mic at that. Jesus. This clarifying moment brings Peter's powers back. (laughs) (laughs) This poignant, powerful (laughs) moment brings Peter's powers it's worse because it's Peter's powers back, and I keep saying Peter's powers pack. <laughs> Going to pick up their their video from the uh, blue box, whatever that's called, red, red box. box. Blue, yeah, blue box uh, is what uh, Steve Jobs sold in the seventies uh, at MIT that allowed you to call foreign countries for free. There you go. That's trivia. <laughs> you can name any color box, and it was some hacker thing <laughs> or fracker. If you want to get technical, whatever it's called. Why is your dog wearing a wig in the rain? <laughs> no, my dog's a redhead. And her hair looks like my dog's hair. Her wig looks like my dog's hair when he comes in out of the rain. <laughs>